Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we talk about swooping, the sport within the sport of skydiving. I recently got some more advanced canopy training, and so I had some questions for Josh about the crowd-pleasing spectacle that I see every day at the drop zone. This skydiving discipline is widely considered to be one of the most dangerous of skydiving pursuits, but it can be accomplished safely with the proper training and attitude. Then Josh talks about how great it is to be an assassin and obliterate your targets. As a disclaimer, neither myself, Josh, nor the Content Clearinghouse Law Team condone the assassination of persons, although we do think fictional assassination is pretty damn awesome. Josh is talking about the Greg Hurwitz assassination novels, Orphan X. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. <laughs> How are you? I, for the fifth time, I'm doing awesome. I'm doing a lot better than the Ecuadorian internet connection. Uh, that's why I can't see your beautiful face right now to do the podcast with you. Well, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I'm not that beautiful right now, buddy. Oh. So if my if my voice sounds a little hoarse, that's why. Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. I uh... Well, I was really just fishing for a some covert sympathy but uh thanks so much for looking out for me uh but yeah i just want to get that out front i might sound a little uh little gravelly today gotcha well what you been up to uh not a whole lot recently but uh we do have joe rogan tickets coming up at the end of april which we're pretty excited about they were very difficult to get Oh, Joe Rogan, is that that guy that has absolutely no controversy surrounding him whatsoever? That's the one. Everybody loves him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, so, actually, you got me into listening to Joe Rogan back in the day, and I always kind of thought, like, uh, like what could he possibly have to say? Joe Rogan's like, just like everybody that doesn't listen to Joe Rogan, I thought, like, oh, he's like just a total meathead. But um, I've been kind of following the controversy for a while because it seems like every couple of months there's something. And what I've realized with all the Joe Rogan controversy, every single time without fail, 100%, it has always been a problem that could be so easily resolved by the person just listening to Joe Rogan. Just listen to one episode. Like I've heard so many times that Joe Rogan is, you know, he is alt left or he's alt right, or he is, uh, you know, he's racist or whatever the problem is. And I've been like consistently impressed with how reasonable he is as a human being, as an interviewer. Like one of the problems I've heard is, oh, Joe Rogan doesn't, he doesn't challenge his, his uh, guests ideas. You know, he doesn't challenge if they have a controversial idea. And what I've always thought is, you know, it's not really Joe Rogan's job to challenge someone's ideas just because you don't believe in it. And every single time, you know, it's been like some sort of like alt-left or alt-right talking point that people have a problem. You know, they think that he is opposing some, you know, party line. And 
you know, like I said, just listening to one episode, I feel like could resolve most of those issues. You know, I can't say I've been listening to him recently, but I always uh, I have fond memories of listening to Joe Rogan and always just felt like he was uh, just having a good time with people. That's all it really seemed like. I, I haven't really been following what's going on. I just have been hearing his name coming up a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the pretty standard uh, issues that always come up. You know, people are upset about things that he said on his podcast that are offensive. And, you know, his argument is always, you know, we are comedians and part of comedy is saying offensive things, trying to make your friends laugh. And that's been a consistent issue. And almost every time there's been a problem, it's some sort of quote out of context. And you know how I feel about that. You can absolutely never trust a quote out of context. It's always cherry picked to drive some sort of narrative. And anytime I see quotes out of context, I just feel like I just need to tune this completely out because it's almost always disingenuous. Well, Josh, one day the content clearinghouse is going to blow up um, to the next level. And I can't wait to hear what quotes they take out of context from us. We'll have all of our own haters soon, <laughs> Brett. That's like the sign that you've really made it. That's the dream. I just want <laughs> some internet some trolls just wasting their time talking about me. That's right. Well, speaking <laughs> of haters, uh, I do have some corrections from our last episode that was almost a month ago. Uh, so Brett and I, we have tried to get this episode out to you guys, and we had some technical difficulties I think, AKA, are, I think those are called uh, technological differences. Exactly. The last episode that we recorded, uh, it was awful. Like we recorded this episode once before, and when I was editing it down, my thought was, I cannot release this. It's just so terrible. So here we are again, <laughs> doing this episode again. Hopefully we'll be back on our A game, and uh, hopefully we'll also be back into the normal swing of things from here on out. But I have some corrections from our last episode. Um, we, we were talking about the one-shots, uh, one-shot scenes in action movies, and I mentioned the one-shot hallway fight scene in the raid, and the that scene I was talking about is not from the raid. It's from Old Boy. So if anyone was screaming to themselves for the last three-ish weeks that I was wrong, write us in and let us know. And uh, I just want to get that out there. Sometimes, you know, we get things wrong here on the Content Clearinghouse. I do consider myself to be a contentologist, but that does not mean we are infallible. So, Well, speak for yourself, Josh. I've never <laughs> said anything wrong. I've never mispronounced anything wrong. Uh, I have a perfect track record here on the show. Well, speaking of that, also, uh, we, I was giving you a hard time about Vigilante last time, and I recently heard someone say, vigilante on a show so i will let that one slide it's acceptable but just barely i'm however, so happy to hear that oh i'm off the hook however do nofrio absolutely not we all know from our last episode that the proper pronunciation is do nofrio in the robot voice <laughs> that's it do nofrio <laughs> that's it that's the corrections i think we're all up to date now yeah so what do you got for off top today? You know what, Josh? I'm uh, diverging from our usual format. I actually wanted to skip the off top, and I wanted to have a little conversation about swooping with you 
because uh, sometimes sometimes things happen in life and you realize that you don't really know anything about a particular thing that you have a lot of exposure to, which is really interesting. Um, so first, I want to thank you and my other friends for gifting me an incredible experience, uh, basically for Christmas. Some of my closest friends, Josh included, gifted me a canopy coaching course with none other than Nick Bash. And I don't know enough about Nick's professional accolades. Uh, you would know more. I think he's like a five-time world champion, um, you know, national champion. I, I don't, you know, he's like this insane greatest of all time goat swooping athlete and i know he's also a fan of the show so if i get something wrong this is going to be really embarrassing for me the next time i'm at the drop zone um but uh do you want to say anything about his background josh well i'll preface it by saying that nick is my brother-in-law so i'm a i'm a family member but also a fan and uh, for anyone who doesn't know nick is a uh, skydiving canopy pilot and we call him the goat the greatest of all time I don't know exactly how many world medals he has, but I know that he has consistently broken his own distance swooping records over and over again. And uh, there's a lot of amazing footage of him winning swoop freestyle competitions. And yeah, he's just a, if you need canopy piloting advice, he is one of the best resources on the planet. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to hear about what you learned while you were coaching with him. You know, he also has some really gruesome x-ray pictures of his leg um, after a swooping uh, injury. So if you're like a nurse or a medical professional, you might really enjoy that sort of content as well. That's not the content we cover on the show, but um, yeah, he's got a lot of uh, metal hardware in his body. But the last... He, he had a really... Uh... He had a, a really uh, well-publicized accident, so he was doing a two-way swoop with another uh, another canopy pilot, and uh, they came in too low for him, and because he is an amazing pilot, he was able to essentially redirect his crash into the water and hit the water, skipped off, but ended up crashing, breaking pretty much everything on the left side of his lower body, and he had, I think it was like a two-year recovery. But what's amazing is that uh, he came out of that recovery, which he basically treated as a full-time job, which is really amazing watching him do that. He came back and his first competition back, which was uh, skydiving swoop nationals, and pretty much swept it and won everything. So I know that he was a little concerned. Like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be back into it, but I think – he pretty ma he made a pretty public statement that he is back and he's pretty much better than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Really awesome. So this is, you know, I've been skydiving like uh, for actually quite a while, but my jumping has, you know, I've taken time off and come back and I was never really that much of a proficient canopy pilot. I kind of focused on free flying uh, from the wind tunnel so to have one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching from someone like this, like well, not only was it a new experience, but I basically learned more about how my parachute, how my wing operates uh, within, you know, a day. Seven, seven skydives that were all videoed and debriefed after every jump, and then I was given drills and things to practice. Um, I learned more in those seven jumps in that one day than I had learned 
about my parachute like over the last like 10 years. Like, I mean, I was jumping a, a much different parachute when I was an active skydiver a decade ago. But, um, you know, I've put some jumps on this, uh, you know, pretty standard canopy that I jump now and I just haven't really played with it. So I'm, I feel like I, I always had a, I always kind of told myself I'd never really get into swooping, but after I had a lot of fun playing with some of the performance characteristics and the ways that you can uh, break surge and dive, um, I, I just wanted to like get a little bit of a crash course, uh, no pun intended on that, um, from you. Yikes. As to like, well, like what is swooping like how how do you define swooping like i know what it is when i see it at the drop zone i think you're utilizing uh, some sort of technique to uh, achieve greater airspeed to add energy so that you can extend your flare over the ground but does this um, so i think when i had a conversation with with you about this recently and then we decided to save it for the show my question was can you swoop in a straight line. Can I do a brake surge on final approach and pull both my front risers and add energy and then flare the canopy over the ground? Is that a swoop or does a swoop require a turn? I think a typical swoop, it involves two pieces, the turn, which the entire point of the turn is to build up speed. And then the actual swoop, which is like you said, that extended flare over the ground. But when you're first learning those techniques, you definitely want to learn them without the turn. So like you're saying, you want to learn to either break surge your canopy or get on double fronts and just generate forward speed in a straight line. And yeah, a swoop can be uh, without a turn. You know, it's not going to be a very long swoop, but you can still get the idea. And, uh, you know, you can also get a swoop just from coming in straight in downwind and the uh it's all about just essentially milking the flare as long as possible to keep the canopy flying because the canopy has it has a natural glide angle which uh you know on a typical skydiving canopy it's like three to one is what they say and when you turn a canopy you have a natural recovery arc so when a when a parachute turns it dives when it comes out of the dive it will naturally recover on its own uh, and whatever that altitude that it takes to recover is the recovery arc so on a legitimate swoop you are doing some sort of turn uh you know really anything 90 degrees or over and you're building up speed and then when you are really getting into the uh, the intricacies uh, intricacies of swooping, you are taking your canopy down into what's called the corner, which is deeper than the natural recovery arc would allow it to recover on its own. And then you are forcing it to recover using the rear risers. And when you force it to recover, that kind of slingshots you out of the recovery arc. And all of that speed that you've built up in the dive turns into forward speed. And that forward speed also turns into lift. So a typical canopy when it's flying straight, it's losing altitude, but with all that airspeed and by manipulating the rear risers and the toggles, you can cause a canopy to go back up and just travel across the ground. And that's where you get those really amazing and crowd pleasing swoops because you can go 
hundreds of feet and you can carve a swoop you can do freestyle maneuvers and you know like a swooping competition will take place over water so they're dragging water it's all a spectacle it's amazing to watch and chances are you know if you're not a skydiver you've probably seen two things either videos of people in free fall or most likely videos of people swooping very rarely are you just watching people coming in straight in because a straight in approach on just a normal canopy is kind of utilitarian, but a swoop is like a true spectacle. It definitely is. And you know, it's like the one discipline in skydiving that really is, can be like enjoyed as a spectator on the ground. Like when people, uh, you know, the drop zone that I've been skydiving at recently, um, a lot of people come out and just watch. Well, you can't really see what people are doing in free fall. I mean, they, you know, you might see some tiny specks, um, but you know, really like the, the crowd pleasing, uh, the, f- the fun stuff to watch for experienced skydivers too, is people coming in hot. Ah, it's the best. And that's <laughs> why it's been, uh, repeatedly, it's been an Olympic test event, which Nick has competed in. And for some reason it hasn't been adopted into the Olympics. And the argument I've always heard is that it requires a mechanical device or a machine to get you to the point we're able to participate in the sport. But, you know, that I think that argument kind of falls apart when you just look at snowboarding or skiing because they are using a machine to get them to top of the hill. Nobody is hiking up there. Yeah, that's you know, to, true. So hopefully one day it will be adopted because it's like a it's a perfect Olympic sport. You know, it's got the spectacle, it's got the the insane ability that when you just watch it, you, you feel like, I don't think I could ever do this. And that, that's one of the things that makes a great Olympic sport. You know, like when you watch any, any winter sport, every single bit of it looks completely beyond my ability. And that's why I like watching people do it. Oh, you remember that time we went bobsledding? (laughs) Oh, do I ever Brett? I talk about bobsledding. (laughs) Anytime someone asks me like, Oh, what's like the, craziest experiences you've <laughs> yeah. ever had it's always on that list you know i put i put base jumping i put bungee jumping and net diving when i used to work at the bungee park in, in uh in college skydiving obviously and then bobsledding which is this thing that we did one time but i'm sure you remember it basically felt like we were in a time warp tunnel yeah because we were we went and rode the bobsled in park city uh and it was being driven by an Olympian who was training and we were essentially just dead weight in the back of this thing. So at first I thought it was going to be a ride. And then as we loaded up the Olympian hops in, he does like this leg pat. He does like the hail Mary full of grace (laughs) tap on his chest. And he like hits his helmet a few times. I was like, Oh my God, this guy is going through some sort of pre flight safety ritual in his mind. This is going to be legit. And, uh, yeah, it did not disappoint. We had to, we had to brace like we were on a fighter jet and like, as we went around (laughs) corners, so we didn't pass out. So good. If you ever have a chance to ride a bobsled, people do it. If I remember correctly, there's like 12 turns or 13 turns. You do the full Olympic track and you, you achieve like nine G's, but it's, you (laughs) don't, you don't pass out from it though, because it's like instant on instant off. Every turn is like, like it just you feel the pressure instantly and then it's instantly off of your body and you just as you're accelerating it feels like you can't get any faster and oh you get so much faster so quickly and it, it is like a time warp 
Um, well, back to swooping. You know, so one of the really cool things about Nick's class um, was that he has this like this GPS technology that he essentially like duct tapes to your helmet, and he can keep track of all these metrics. I mean, pretty much everything that you can imagine, and you can load it up with this software that's specifically built to track like how a parachute flies. And with this sort of like data-driven, science-driven approach to improving canopy flight, he's figured out like exactly how fast he can dive his canopy and reaching basically like terminal velocity with his canopy. I think it, he said it was like 102 miles per hour. Maybe it was not. Oh my God, I'm not really sure. But I mean, he's you know he's achieved these like things where like he can't get any more speed out of his parachute with like his current weight, his body, his, you know, his equipment. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable, man. I mean, I had so much fun and I learned so much. I figured out the toggles. So I, I, I don't know if this is even true or not, but I feel like I like started to come to this conclusion. I feel like the toggles are only there to land the parachute. They're not even like, you shouldn't even use them to turn. Yeah, when you get to a certain point and a certain type of canopy, that is correct. I mean, you use your toggles for if you need to slow your descent. Like I'll use my toggles if I need to hang out up in the top of the pattern. If there are people below me that have slower canopies and they have kind of like cut down in the pattern and I don't want them anywhere near me when I'm landing, I'll just flare down and hook my toggles into the lats of my harness and my canopy allow me to hang for a long time but for the most part when i'm flying i've got my arms all the way up it's mostly harness turns or riser turns and yeah the toggles are really only being engaged when it's time to extend the flare extend the swoop oh it's so crazy man i, I just can't believe there's so much that i have to learn about something that I've, you know, uh, interacted with on every single skydive out of necessity. And now it's becoming my favorite part of the sport. So I know we have a lot of skydiving listeners. I, I hope that they, uh, you know, maybe venture out there into the world of exploring their parachute if they hadn't, like I never did. Um, and then for the people that, like, don't do any skydiving, like, it's just such a fun reminder that this sport has so many different paths that you can explore and take and like it's you know when you have an activity that has like activities within the activity like a russian doll of exciting things to do i feel like you can just never get bored there's always something new to learn man skydiving is a hard one to get bored with that's for sure and swooping is totally the sport within the sport and it is probably the most forward-facing part of the sport you know, I think if you ask any uh, woofo out there if they've seen skydiving video, it's probably swooping video. And you know, with free fall, there are so many disciplines within free fall, but it's all it all pretty much boils down to the same thing. You're free falling in different orientations. But then with swooping, you know, it's it's so intense. It's like a full body sport. It's it's fully engaged and it has that danger factor that really, you know, makes it pop when people are looking at it. Because when you watch free fall video, I remember before I started skydiving, I would watch sky surfing video and I would think 
I could totally do that. That doesn't look that hard. They don't even look like they're moving. But then when you see swooping, you know, just the the insane speed and seeing people dive at the ground and pull their canopies out the last second and then skimming across the ground, shooting up a rooster tail in the water. It's just, <laughs> it's so awesome, man. So what would, what would you say is like the biggest takeaway from your course with him? Uh, I just want to play more, man. I just want to play with harness turns, with rear riser turns. I think the big, I think the biggest takeaway is like never say never uh, when it comes to like, you know, I, I think that I do want to take a path where I can like conservatively approach, um, you know, building energy to extend my landings. I mean, I, I'm uh, really getting a kick out of seeing even what my, you know, relatively large canopy is capable of. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, like you're saying, doing it safely, that is a 100% has to be the focus when you're learning it. I've lost a lot of friends to swooping and there was a time when femur was a verb in skydiving because so many people were breaking their femurs swooping or even dying, you know, and I've lost several close friends and probably the closest I've ever come to having an actual skydiving injury was when I had about a hundred jumps and I was just winging it before I even realized how dangerous it was. And I essentially hooked myself in. I hit both of my knees on the ground, just a couple of feet low in my recovery arc. And I ended up laying out in this alternate landing area for like 15 minutes thinking I was broken. And then eventually, you know, I was able to get up and start moving and I just kind of loaded all my shit in the car and disappeared and never told anybody what happened. But uh, the next, the next week when I was out there, I, started hiring people for canopy coaching and, you know, getting the proper coaching and doing it right from that point on. I've never really had an incident where I even had, you know, like the, the risk of getting hurt, luckily. And I'd like to continue that. And I'd like all my friends to continue that same sort of, uh, progression, you know, safe, taking it slow. There's no rush. You have your entire life and thousands of jumps to learn it. So you should definitely, get coaching and learn to do it correctly. Well, that is good advice. I, I appreciate you letting me skip the off top and, uh, I guess swooping was the off top. It yeah, was the it totally off top was. all along. Yeah. This is an incredible experience and it's definitely, uh, it's definitely worth talking about. Yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate the Christmas present, buddy. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Well, you are welcome. Just be safe out there. Will do buddy. So you got anything on your content circuit? You know, I do actually. I've been watching Love is Blind. <laughs> this is a dating <laughs> show, Brett. You know it is. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It is kind of like your guilty pleasure. It is my guilty pleasure on those long, lonely flights when I'm sitting in the back um, commuting from one place to another place. Um, Fantasizing about dating Daredevil. <laughs> blind. <laughs> exactly yeah it kind of ties in with my uh favorite mcu action sports hero um i also have been playing wordle have you heard about this game that's taking the world by storm taking the wordle by storm oh Uh, yeah i've uh heard about it but i don't know anything about it it doesn't seem like my thing but hey you might sell me on it actually it's um it's it's sort of like a cross between a crossword puzzle and maybe like threes. It's like a very simple, quick. Ooh, I do love threes. 
Yeah, it, you just... Uh, uh, well, what's interesting about it, I think this guy made it for his girlfriend. And she was like, hey, this is pretty good. It was just kind of like a... Just like a, he programmed this silly little game. And then the New York Times bought it. So hopefully this guy got loaded from this awesome little game. But it's kind of... They a, probably ripped him off. It's possible. It's very possible. Um, but yeah, you just type like a five-letter word of any word. And then it tells you which letters stay in, which letters are in the right place, or if that letter is not in the word at all. And then you've got, I think, like five or six chances um, where you can keep trying combinations, and hopefully by the sixth you can guess the word of the day. So it changes every day. Um, you know, sometimes, So it's a little like Hangman, too. A little like Hangman, sure, except you know, there's no asphyxiation involved at all, um, unless that's no, your I'm thing. Out. <laughs> But it's, I mean, I highly recommend it. It's pretty addictive and it's kind of been my, uh, you know, you got to find those things in life that just keep you going and Wordle is, is keeping me going right now, buddy. <laughs> well, dude, shoot me an invite and uh, I'll give it a shot. I'll play it with you. <laughs> that sounds good. How about you? What's on your content circuit? You know what? Ever since our Daredevil episode... I have been mainlining Daredevil, and I gotta say, dude, I think it is also my favorite MCU property. Like oh, not I just love the that. not just the Netflix, but overall, bef- before I would say probably Iron Man, uh, maybe Winter Soldier, the uh, Infinity War saga, but nothing really holds a candle to how amazing Daredevil is. And it is criminally underrated, and unfortunately, it's leaving Netflix on the 28th, which is just a few days from now when we're recording this. I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, it's already going to be gone. So hopefully, Disney snatches it up, or you know, it's available to purchase on Prime. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Daredevil. You know, we talked about some of the. You know, I asked a question about uh, them doing stunts with the blindfold on. And I found some Reddit threads about people theorizing what they think happened. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's some sort of material they can see through. But this one guy was talking about it it being this material called a scrim, which is it's essentially a nearly transparent material that uh, if a scene behind it is lit, but there's no light on the scrim, it's basically invisible. But when you shine light light on it from the front, then it reflects that light and it appears to be uh, like a solid material. So that's one thing that they were theorizing that Charlie Cox and what was his uh, stunt doubles name? Brewster. Uh, Charles Brewster. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that might've been, they might've been wearing uh, you know, like a bandana made of scrim material, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, I thought for some of the, of the uh, I thought some of the close up stunts, I thought I read somewhere that uh, Brewster, like had performed some stunts like actually blindfolded, which wouldn't surprise me either. I mean, they did so many amazing like cutting edge things for the show. Oh man, it is the more I watched it, the more I was just completely obsessed with Daredevil's powers and also just like his relationship with the Punisher. I didn't realize how much context I was missing just watching the Punisher show. Like for one, the Punisher drops an F bomb which is the only F-bomb I've heard in any Marvel property. So I was like, fuck yeah, Punisher. Nice work, buddy. <laughs> but also like the perspective that the Punisher is the bad guy. Because when you watch the Punisher show, of course he's doing all this 
bad guy stuff that's not acceptable within polite society, but also you're on his side. So you have his motivations for everything. And, you know, through those motivations, you're like, oh, I can see why you'd murder all these people totally. But when you see it from Daredevil's perspective, you know, Daredevil doesn't kill people. uh, It's really interesting to see Punisher as he is a villain in the beginning. And he's almost like a horror movie villain at that because Daredevil is just finding the remnants of his, you know, his aftermath. He's finding like the cartel members on meat hooks and he, he's finding like dismembered Irish mobsters. So it's really cool to see him from the other side. It makes him way more scary. Definitely. Yeah. And it, you know, uh, just to correct myself, it's Chris Brewster was the stunt double. Chris Brewster. Yeah. Don't write in everyone unless you want to write in. Yeah. Yeah. Content clearing house. We're We're so lonely. (laughs) Brett's watching Love is Blind Uh, and I forgot how much context I was missing on the Punisher story like his time in prison his relationship with old what's her name Karen Page and like the backstory about the gangs being involved in the attack on his family that was all stuff that I was just functioning completely without when I was watching Punisher yeah definitely I'm so stoked that you loved Daredevil Uh, sounds like even more than I did uh, it just means I. it's confirmed I have great taste in entertainment. Well, you are a contentologist. That you I know, am. One thing that uh, I was – you made a big point in your Daredevil episode about how annoying Foggy was and how much of a bitch he is. And yeah, he's kind of a bitch physically, but he didn't really bother me at all. Like I really loved his monologues and his knowledge of all things law. Like To me, he kind of seemed like he evolved into – a lawyer superhero. He just knows everything. He know, he always knows exactly how to like pull some sort of law trick out of his ass, which I thought was a really awesome character <laughs> trait. So he didn't really bother me at all. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it's uh it's just well, yeah, you got to listen to the episode for those that haven't for the proper context. I I wasn't complaining about Foggy personally. I just know that that's can be a little bit of a criticism. For some viewers, and I actually really like how the character evolved over time, and I, I do feel like he he just a, speaks to the little bitch inside of all of us, and uh, <laughs> you know he's just a, a role model for us to grow the f up. Indeed. Yeah. Well, so thanks for bringing that to me. That totally revolutionized my Marvel viewing experience because I had watched a little bit of Daredevil. I think I'd watched up to the middle of season two but oh my god season three if you guys have not seen it go on prime buy it it's totally worth it the story with kingpin is he might be the scariest villain in all of mcu and he doesn't have any superpowers other than just a total wrangling of strategy and manipulation which is in some ways, way more frightening than just being able to snap half the universe out of existence. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's great. He, so thanks for formidable. that, buddy. Yeah, anytime. Well, anything else on your content circuit? That's it. Just All nothing right. but Daredevil. I can't wait to get some Wordle in there. Well, let's take a uh, quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to get into some content. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Josh, I do not know, or uh, as they would say here in Ecuador, yo no sé. Yo no sé. I do not know how to say content in Espanol. 
<laughs> but if I did, I'd say, K content are you bringing to the show, uh, Orda? I thought you were going to say, I do not know what content you're bringing. And I was going to say, that's a lie, Brett. We've already recorded this episode. Oh, once. yeah, that's true. I forgot about so that. So you'll have to <laughs> act like you're surprised. So let's start off with a question. You know, we do that here. I love a good do you question. Have a, a specific person besides me or all of the listeners, of course, that you regularly <laughs> trade content with? Let's see, regularly trade content? Um, you know, I was seated. I was seated in six uh, C recently, and the person in six B seemed to be really interested in what I was watching on my iPad. That so, just seems invasive. It does and not very regular at all. It doesn't. No. Um, no. To be honest with you, you're my content honey. So, uh, ooh, nice. <laughs> and I, I would I, not that we're exclusive, but you know, you're you're always the one I, I keep coming back for more. So. We're not monogamous content traders. <laughs> we're, we're you know we're new school. That's uh, right. Well, for me, it's my father-in-law, Melissa's dad, and I couldn't ask for a better feature in a relative than someone who truly understands what I like and consistently recommends pure gold. So he and I trade books all the time, which is so cool. But today's content came from him, and I got to say, he totally nailed it. This has been one of my favorite things from the last six months. And let me ask you another question. Uh-huh. How do you feel about assassinations? Are you a fan or a big fan? I'm a I mean, big fan. Always You either love them or yeah. you really love them. Absolutely. Big fan of assassinations? All right, I'll just contact the FBI right now and let them know. Uh, I've mentioned the concept of assassination novels in passing quite a few times in recent episodes. And today I'm talking all about assassination novels, buddy. Ooh, interesting. And when you're reading something, you know it's going to be good when one of the main things on your mind is, I wonder if the authorities contacted this writer while he was researching this book. Because you know our search history is patrolled by shadowy government agencies, and you can really only do so much research on how to kill high-profile world leaders before eventually the police come a-calling. And I really respect that kind of dedication to crafting a book about the world's greatest assassin. Yeah. Now, wait, despite wait, my... Uh, wait a minute. Are you saying that my computer saves my internet search history? Probably. I, uh, oh, I'm not boy. a uh, I'll, I'll internetologist. Right yeah. But uh, yeah, you might want to clear that search history, buddy. Yeah, that's a good idea. Now, I couldn't actually find any stories about uh, this writer being investigated, which is surprising, especially considering the concept of book four in this series. Seriously, I cannot believe he didn't get a call from the Secret Service. So I'm going to discuss quite a few details about this series of novels, but almost all of those details take place in the serialized recap that happens in every novel after the first, as is the habit of this type of ongoing series. But these details are what makes this character so interesting. So today I'm talking about the Orphan X novels by Greg Hurwitz. And I'm guessing you have probably never read these or really heard of these besides that one time we recorded this episode before. <laughs> you would be correct, Josh. <laughs> you were right that time and you're right this time as well. I knew it. I took notes last time. So yeah. the, basic, uh, the basic synopsis of these novels is as such. And yes, I stole this synopsis directly from the Wikipedia page, and it's not 
technically plagiarism if you aren't passing off the thoughts as your own. That was always my basic argument back in Harvard where we got our contentology degrees. And look at me now, one of the world's two premier contentologists. So That's us. That's us, you and me. That's us. Josh and Brett. Yeah. So the wiki uh, synopsis sums this up perfectly. So this book centers around the character of Evan Smoke. It's S-M-O-A-K. At the age of 12, he was enrolled in a top-secret operation known as the Orphan Program. He's the 24th recruit in the program and is known only as Orphan X. So the goal of the program is to train orphans so they can be assassins for government agencies. The program is shut down, but Orphan X maintains access to the program's funding and weapons. And in his 30s, Smoke begins freelancing as an assassin known as the Nowhere Man, using his skills to fight corruption in the form of vigilante justice. That was for you. I appreciate so that. So for each person he helps, he tells them to pay it forward by giving someone in need the help of his phone number. Uh, the number is one eight five five two nowhere which you can actually call and hear an excerpt from the novel, which is pretty cool. I didn't realize that until I was researching this. And I mean, it seems totally obvious now, but I called it, and uh, yep, you can hear part of the part of the book. That's really and, cool. And uh, during his adventures, he discovers that uh, former orphan agents have also begun freelancing and are trying to assassinate him. So that's kind of the setup for the whole uh, the whole series. That sounds awesome. That sounds very Hannah esque. Yeah, uh, I have not seen Hannah, but what I know about it, I mean, she's like a she's like a little kid trained to be an assassin, right? Hell yeah. Yeah, it's oh, some booyah. It's some great assassin content. I think there's been like a movie and then kind of a spin-off show. I love that stuff, man. I love a good assassin story. Oh, you'll love this. So there are currently seven books in this series, uh, with the seventh book actually just having been released on February eighth, and I'm about halfway through it right now. So Evan Smoke, like he's kinda you know, he's the basis of everything and just his mentality and his thought process is what's so interesting about this. So his handler slash trainer slash father figure, Jack said that the, uh, the hardest part about being an assassin isn't the killing. The hardest part is staying human. And so Jack bestows upon Evan, these commandments that in his own words are designed to sharpen him into a lethal instrument and allow him to keep his humanity. I wouldn't typically read off just a serialized list of things, that's kind of boring, but I will read off these Ten Commandments because it kind of sets the uh, sets the stage for everything about Evan Smoke. So the first uh, first commandment is assume nothing. Uh, the second is how you do anything is how you do everything, which I think is really awesome, and uh, that seems like just a good way to live any life, even if if you aren't killing people. Just take yeah. pride in everything you do. <laughs> yeah. But especially if you have to are be, killing people. I mean, obviously, obviously, it's a. Uh, what, it's the second commandment of being the world's greatest assassin. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hey, if you just like work in an office, whatever, do it with pride. That's right. Uh, number three is master your surroundings. Number four, never make it personal. Number five, if you don't know what to do, do nothing. And I'm not a huge fan of that one. And honestly, Evan Smoke isn't either, but it does save his ass a few times. Uh, number six is question orders. Seven is one mission at a time. Number eight, this is another good one. Even if you're not an assassin, never kill a kid. That's just good advice. That's good advice right there. (laughs) (laughs) Number nine, always play offense. And number 10, never let an innocent die. Man, a bunch of these are great for non-killers. And then there's there's the uh, unofficial 11th commandment, which is don't fall in love with plan A. 
And one of the most fascinating parts of this story is the psychology that goes into creating this perfect assassin that, that allows him to live with himself in the quiet times. I mean, it would be so easy to, especially just writing it, to create this mindless killer with no conscience. And there are plenty of those in this story. But Evan's code and his rules laid out by his mentor, uh, they craft his entire path through life. So Jack created this lethal killing machine in Evan Smoke that you also respect and kind of wish you could be? Yeah, I think that's a that's one of the weird things about assassin content is like nobody wants to be a killer. I don't I, I don't know. I mean, I okay, mo- like the vast majority of people don't want to be a killer. But being an assassin Speak for yourself, buddy. That like being an assassin sounds kind of cool. Like there's something Yeah, if you're a psychopath sure an assassin is like that's like a job it's a profession a a killer is just a bad bad person yeah an assassin is something you know you can retire from one day with a nice pension plan (laughs) it's a job you know exactly some of the like greatest uh movie uh protagonists you know jason bourne james bond i mean he's got a license to kill that's an assassin if i've ever seen one they don't offer that at the dmv in america they don't. I've asked every time you I know, go in. <laughs> they're like, uh, can we arrest this guy? So, you know, Jason Bourne, I'd say that's probably the closest uh, cinematic uh, analog to Evan Smoke. Just the way that he, like, moves and he can spot situations. You can, like, read a room and plot a battle through it. Evan's style is very Jason Bourne. Or maybe... Jason Bourne is very Evan. I don't know which one came first. But the uh, the orphan program, it's almost identical to the training Matt Murdock goes through in Daredevil. Ooh. You know, tri- uh, Stick trains him to become a living weapon at the same time instills this sense of humanity in him. And this is exactly the upbringing that creates an orphan X, although Jack might be a slightly more benevolent benefactor than Stick was to Matt Murdock. Yeah, Stick was a real asshole. Big time. Big time. And that becomes apparent the longer you watch the show. So, guys, go out there, buy season three. If you haven't seen it, watch it. <laughs> and I'd imagine that it's exhausting just writing about a character with this much discipline, let alone living the life. So Evan's life is the epitome of refinement. So his apartment is spotless. It's this 7,000-square-foot penthouse suite. Uh, it's a... He has aftermarket titanium wall armor and bulletproof windows and Kevlar blinds, and they're all bespoke, built to spec, and perfectly concealed. And his only constant companions are a living wall, which is a vertical garden in his kitchen where he grows various herbs and spices, and Vera, too, his aloe vera plant that requires almost zero upkeep from him. But he, he's he's kind of like an OCD guy. He doesn't want to see fingerprints smudges anywhere he doesn't want his apartment to have any signs of human life in it basically he wants it to be completely sterile and his uh his main vice is the world's highest quality vodka all intricately arranged in a custom liquor cooler like bullets in a magazine as he says and he has all this uh high-tech equipment he has a floating bed which is basically an electromagnetic levitation device like my floating light bulb lamp that i have here on my desk and it's a it just scaled out to California King scale. Wow, that's this, is, that a, is that a real thing? Can you get a floating, I don't know. A levitating bed? I imagine it could be. I looked it up and I couldn't really find like a real consumer model, but 
I imagine you could scale up the electromagnetic levitation technology up to full-size sleeping scale. So, like, this light bulb thing that I have on my desk, it's called a, uh, I think it's called a flight light bulb. And it's uh, it's really cool. It's It looks like an old-fashioned, like, Edison light bulb. And it has this little wooden base. And inside that wooden base, there's all these electromagnets that shoot this circular electromagnetic field up at the bulb, which has, I guess, like a, uh, just a uh, an opposing, just, non-electromagnetic magnet in it just like a rare earth magnet but when you place the light bulb down inside the field you can feel all this opposition back and forth and eventually you'll find this one little sweet spot where all of a sudden it'll kind of grab it and then it floats you know about an inch off the uh, off the base it's a really fascinating little toy it's cool Yeah. yeah it's really cool imagine sleeping on one of those i i think about it all the time that's all i can think about now so this level of refinement extends to his weaponry, which is primarily the Ares 1911 45 caliber, custom built to his personal specs, which he uses for stopping power and concealment, and which he slags after every use. So everything about what he does is just completely disposable. You know, that's what makes him a great assassin. Everything he's wearing, everything he uses, it's just all burned or melted down after a mission. And this uh, the same level of refinement is present in, it, in Greg Hurwitz's writing. There's nary a wasted word to be seen, and the level of refinement grows as the series progresses. So Greg Hurwitz is he's a, a master of ratcheting up tension. And each scenario, each book strikes you as the most impossible. You know, each set of circumstances, the most difficult thing you can imagine. You feel like every book could be a series conclusion, but the next book just consistently ups the ante in ways that I never would have predicted and I was consistently surprised you know when the next book started up I just I was I was always just like it's like gonna be a total roller coaster ride because the last one left me feeling like oh where could you possibly go from here yeah I love like it's all about suspense man it's all about tension and release in life and in entertainment so so I found an interview uh, about Greg Hurwitz's writing process, and he said that he has a Rolodex of contacts from porn stars to professors to army rangers to demolition breachers. It's sort of a – he said it's, it's like a mafia process of introduction when he's meeting people. So if he, if he needs someone in the Secret Service, he'll reach out to a SEAL buddy who wants to join op with someone in the CIA who is friends with someone in the Secret Service, and he likes getting to know people who – don't want to talk about what they do. So people that might have to go on and off the record because he's researching some pretty insane stuff that might actually have to have some certain details changed so his books don't become a real how-to on true high-level assassination techniques. And that's really interesting. I, I remember, uh, have you read Fight Club? I uh, never read the book, no. So I remember uh, I read an interview with Chuck Palahniuk and he said, there was like a certain part in Fight Club where they're talking about making uh, napalm. And I think in the book they, they talk about it's like you melt, you know, styrofoam or something into orange shoot. It's some like, it's some weird uh, formula. But I remember s- seeing an interview or reading an interview where he talked about how he had to basically make that formula up because he did not want to reveal actually how to make napalm to people. And that seems like kind of the same thing that Greg Hurwitz is doing here. Yeah, wow. You know, I remember Breaking Bad had to do kind of the same thing 
with, uh, you know, the way they portrayed making meth because they wanted it to be as accurate as possible. But they didn't want, you know, they had they like worked with the um, DEA to make sure it was accurate, but they weren't like teaching anybody how to make meth. Oh, man, that's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I always felt like watching Breaking Bad that they were selectively editing things out, like, you know, just showing like the the broad strokes of what was going on. (laughs) Right. Sure. Well, uh, Greg Hurwitz uses immersive research techniques. He said he's swam with sharks, shot with the Navy SEALs, and blown up cars during demolition training, mainly because that stuff is fun, but also he can write it off as researching his books. And he does so much questionable internet research, you know, the aforementioned reason why he thought he would have had to have been investigated. So here's another quote. He said, I'm screwed if anyone checks my search history. It's all like, hotel balcony with best view of the white house if i didn't yeah. have a body of work behind me i'd surely be in trouble so you know his shit's gonna be legit yeah definitely do you think writing books is all just a cover for his eventual plan as a manchurian candidate presidential assassin Ooh, maybe he is like he's just getting tuned up to be the real life evan smoke sleeper cell man yeah, yeah. hopefully well probably wouldn't be that hard to catch then he's pretty public figure <laughs> so he's written uh, over 20 books and numerous comics he's written uh for batman quite a bit and uh i think he's written for deadpool and stuff like that so needless to say i think i'm in love with greg hurwitz uh he might be my new john bernthal oh wow that's those are strong words yeah it's uh man it's it's so fascinating learning about the people that make this stuff because you know to write a book like this you got to have a a whole different thought process which i think is really interesting yeah that's amazing i i have never heard of this book series it sounds it sounds right up my alley dude it's dope all right let's talk about evan smoke a little bit so a little bit more i think i'm also in love with evan smoke so he has the uh the power of unrivaled observation skills and periodically the story will dip into his inner monologue like he'll he'll be watching someone draw a gun and he'll notice the way that the guy's he rests his thumbs underneath the safety lever instead of on top of it and the way the shooter is standing squared up instead of blading his body to present a smaller target denoting that the shooter isn't as well trained as he's letting on and then he talks through his process as he systematically takes his opponents apart piece by piece. And this is the kind of effect in a movie uh, that you'd see accomplished with like a 3D fly-through of various up-close details. But here you get all the glorious effects that only reading can bestow. You know, imagination and hallucinating these images in your head as you consume the pages. You know, it's it's, uh, a lot like Daredevil in the way that he outclasses most common bad guy fodder by so much that he's planning his tactical takedowns in a way to eliminate long range threats and then working his way in towards a center in a circular pattern until every bit of opposition is neutralized. And while watching daredevil, I kept thinking this is how Evan smoke would operate if he had really, really good hearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe some Muay Thai right ropes wrapped around his arms. Yes, man, I love in Daredevil as it progresses to can't get enough of Daredevil, but uh, they start to reveal how Matt Murdock's powers work, and it's essentially like he can see without line of sight, which that would be such 
a huge tactical advantage if you were already an amazing fighter because you know he's basically sitting up on top of a you know a rooftop and he's doing his weird like jerking his head around listening yeah but he's essentially like seeing down into alleyways and in through doorways basically as far as like his other senses can take him and that is like such an awesome superpower that you know it's pretty grounded as far as MCU goes it's a really cool uh it's a really cool character uh, ability yeah the the symbolism too and he uh and i think this even goes as far back as like the Ben Affleck Daredevil uh movie uh the that horrible turd of a film but also you know the show i i think the the symbolism of the way he sees the world is like a world on fire i think that's really cool i like how foggy's like yeah 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 world on fire what does that mean Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so good. So uh Evans Evan Smoke's tactical computer of a mind is offset by his total lack of understanding how normal people operate. He essentially grew up without a childhood, so quite often the story will take Evan through the lobby of Castle Heights where his penthouse is located, some tower in LA. And uh these scenes are handled as covert to overt slaloms through the normality of humanity. And Evan is never more lost than when he's required or forced or coerced into attending an HOA meeting or making small talk on the elevator or trying to determine how to interact with the various residents of his home tower because they're all just living normal and objectively boring lives. And these scenes would wear a bit thin if they lasted too long, but their inclusion is just long enough to highlight how dedicating every waking moment since the age of 12 to becoming one of the most lethal humans on Earth doesn't even begin to prepare you for navigating the mundanity of most humans' existence. So it's a really good, it's a, it's a really good balance of, you know, the uh, maybe the disadvantages of being the world's greatest assassin. Hey, you're you're not much of an orphan if you have a couple of loving parents, now are you? <laughs> That's just science. <laughs> so. I wanted to know how real this could actually be. So I real I research real life assassins and assassinations. And uh, so Evan is a, they call him a cutout. He's basically like a completely deniable asset. You know, they'll drop him into uh, some foreign country and they won't hear from him again until the mission's done. And I couldn't really find anything like that. I, I imagine all programs like that are highly classified. But uh, the first article I looked up was called, How Do I Become an Assassin for the Government? And it was not as helpful as you would imagine. <laughs> there wasn't like a step-by-step -step instructions on uh, how to get that done? Well, it featured such invaluable advice such as join the military I think this article may have been mistaking assassins, which are basically murderers, for soldiers, which we all know are not the same thing, not even by a long shot. Although, assassins are really good at long shots. Yeah, that's, so, that is true. I found some other very fascinating articles. Uh, there's this one article in The, the Atlantic. It was, it's called The Terrifying Background of the Man Who Ran a CIA Assassination Unit. That title really rolls off the tongue. Yeah. But uh, they were saying that after 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush authorized the creation of a secret CIA assassination unit tasked with finding and killing top al-Qaeda leaders, and it operated without any congressional oversight for seven years. And in 2009, when it finally came out, 
it was revealed that the CIA had been outsourcing these hits to uh, the PMC, private military contractor, Blackwater. So I do want to make a disclaimer here. I'm not in the military. Everything I know is just things that I read, so I won't be editorializing any of this. But I think that everyone has heard of Blackwater. They're the most famous PMC in the world, and they're infamous because of the Blackwater massacre that took place in Iraq in 2007 that left 17 people dead, many of them civilians. And I'll link in the show notes if you want to know more about that, but it was a pretty well-publicized event, and it kind of... uh, it kind of brought the uh, private military contracting world into you know the, the forefront of everyone's mind, and it kind of painted them in a bad light. But it was a huge scandal, but nothing like this assassination thing. So before this happened, uh, government-sanctioned kills were subject to some kind of tenuous oversight, but when Blackwater took over, the only oversight seemed to be the CIA providing a target package, and then... Just any after-action reporting that Blackwater wanted to provide. So one CIA, CIA officer turned Blackwater employee named Enrique Prado was in charge of these kill units. And his background also included an alleged employment by a narco crime boss where he was tied to seven murders. However, he was never tried for this since it seems the CIA was shielding him from investigation and made him unavailable when the police came around asking questions. So Two members of Prado's team that were referenced in this article described a hit they participated in Afghanistan. They spent three weeks learning to blend in with the local population, including walking around everywhere barefooted like the locals did. And uh, once they were fully integrated, the hit took place in Kabul, where they were instructed to enter a busy marketplace, find the target in a particular pickup truck, and kill him in broad daylight. And that seemed to be a run-of-the-mill mission. Apparently, they did this all the time and then just move on to the next one. You know there are these assassins out there, man. Like, this is crazy stuff. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty crazy that it would be outsourced like this. You know, you, yeah. would, you would expect it to be, um, I don't know, I, I would expect more oversight than this. And as much as I love reading about stuff like this, Really, the concept of an assassination, it's so offensive. Just the concept about, of <laughs> the older I get, the more I feel, you know, anything that affects someone else's life, you know, damages it or even, you know, especially ending it is just, it becomes more and more offensive to me every single day. And that probably has something to do with having kids and also being a human and not wanting to die. But it's just so yeah. crazy to, to think of, this as being an official program. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes sense that they'd want it, uh, you know, less oversight, less, you know, they, they want uh, a buffer, right? Hey, it's not, it's not us. It was, it was that other guy. Yeah. Yeah. Man, private assassination units. Yeah. Mercenaries. Like civilian. Oh, well, according to this article from, uh, 2012, there was never more than a cursory investigation into this insane outsourcing of murder by a government to private contractors. And it's not, you know, this isn't quite the same as the orphan program, but maybe it's even more disturbing since this is real. And this is all on the heels of 
the well-documented CIA deposing or assassinating of world leaders and Soviet sympathizers that took place from the end of World War II up to 1976 when President Gerald Ford signed an executive order that stated, no employee of the United government shall engage in or conspire in political assassinations, which uh, I don't know if that's... uh, that's not completely reassuring to me. I doubt it all stop- actually stopped in 1976. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it did. I'm going to say no. So, some famous but failed attempts, uh, assassination attempts, included when U.S. agents tried to kill Castro numerous times with such classic weapons as exploding cigars and poison fungus lined wetsuits because apparently he enjoyed diving for mollusks and they thought that was a way they could get him. They tried to kill him 184 different times on record. And, have, you, uh, have you ever heard of the, uh, the Fidel Castro's uh, mistress that was hired to be an assassin. And then uh, I think she like pulled the gun out and he was like, well then go ahead and shoot me. And then uh, she couldn't do it. And then they made love. They made sweet, sweet love. Oh, classic James Bond scenario. Yeah. I'm looking it up right now. Mar- Marita Lorenz. She must have been hot. Uh, yeah. Pull that off. Yeah. So uh, the CIA also attempted aerial bombing assassinations on leaders uh, such as Libya's Muammar Gaddafi in 1986 and Serbia's Slobodan Milosevic in 1999 and Iraqi President Saddam Hussein in 2003. And uh, this is just stuff that I could find with a bit of cursory research. There are doubtless hundreds of successful hits that we'll never know about. Probably uh, probably a few cutouts like Evan Smoke out there too. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, let's lighten it up a bit. Yeah. Uh, one of our listeners and my friend Wiley once told me that we are unflinchingly positive when we review our content, which makes sense because we aren't really a review show. We're more of a recommendation show, and therefore we extol the virtues of the content that we love. So I'm going to do something here, uh, something new, and talk about a very small portion of this series that I found to be absolutely appalling. Oh One my. book does feature a horribly written skydiving scene. Yeah. It's not for its description of free fall. It's the attitude and the lingo used in the plane. And as a skydiver, I'm always, I always have a critical eye anytime skydiving is depicted in pop culture, and I'm sure you do too. In fact, most pop culture depictions of skydiving I found to be quite lacking, but this one was particularly egregious. Uh, it was actually entertainingly bad so much to the point that i actually enjoyed it it was a full circle (laughs) and that's a testament to how much i like these books because otherwise otherwise you know i don't think i'd be willing to tolerate this and this was a a rare moment where i don't think greg hurwitz quite did his homework or he just talked to some asshole dude bro skydivers as he puts it so there's a there's one part where a jump master is giving a briefing and he says, there's a direct quote, fall flat, dumb and happy, careful feet control, no backsliding. Got it, ladies? We don't want any midair tinkling. <laughs> midair tinkling. <laughs> no backsliding, ladies. I love that. I'm going to say this. Like, oh, man. This, this should be like a standard skydive briefing, honestly. I mean, 
actually, now that I think about it, this is the exact brief I used to give when I was an instructor. So never yeah. mind, Greg Hurwitz, you yeah. totally nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> I'm going to start adding that to my coaching in the tunnel. No midair tinkling, ladies. <laughs> so to wrap this thing up, this is the kind of series that I will be very sad when I finish it because I'll never be able to consume it again for the first time. But it's exactly the type of book I love because it has required my brain to think on its terms. And those terms are assassination, lingo, motives, techniques, all good things. You never know when that's going to come in handy. You never do, and yeah. I never knew I was so into fictional assassinations, although – I shouldn't be surprised if you asked a listener of this show if I'd be into this type of book. I think the answer would be fucking obviously. (laughs) And luckily for me, the seventh book is out. I'm reading it right now. It's called Dark Horse. It just released this week. So, Brett, if you'll excuse me, I've got a little bit of reading to do. (laughs) Nice, Josh. That is absolutely awesome. I, you know, I'm no orphan, but if I was, I would want to be one that kills. This sounds That's like kind, a, buddy. this sounds like a, a really fantastic book series. So thank you for bringing it to the show. Thanks to your father-in-law for introducing this to you. Um, yeah, outstanding work, buddy. Um, and thanks to all the listeners for tuning in to the Content Clearing House. I know we've been a little sporadic on uh, when we're releasing content with everything going on, uh, but you know, supply chain, uh, supply supply chain issues. You know, so that's. What can we do? That's uh, they get. That's why it's hard to get my kid into daycare. That's why it's hard to get Joe Rogan tickets, and that's why this podcast didn't come out for that's the right. last couple of All weeks. Right. Support challenges, yeah. Uh, well, make sure you tune in next time, and thank you for joining us. <laughs>